and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. This is our last podcast for the year. We're taking next week off for the holidays, and we're taping at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, December 20th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this, but I hope not. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Good morning. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. We also have an interview this week that I did with Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster and strategist who talked about the politics of health care, particularly for the Republicans and what that might mean going forward. I taped this interview before we got the Texas court decision, but it is still relevant. So we're going to make this mostly a year in review, but I feel like we need at least some update on the court decision out of Texas, holding that the ACA now lacking a tax penalty to enforce its individual mandate is unconstitutional in its entirety starting January 1st. I find the reaction to this has been kind of curious. Democrats, of course, are decrying the ruling, along with what appears to be a lot of uh, health lawyers and analysts, including some fairly conservative ones. But What we've heard from Republican elected officials other than the president is mostly crickets. Has anybody heard much more, Anna? Well, I think what we've heard most publicly um, is, you know, the Democrats tried to force a vote in the Senate to um, intervene in in the lawsuit as it moves along. And the um, Republicans immediately rejected that. And so, um, you know, that's the most strategy we've really seen so far. And it doesn't say a lot. And I think that Democrats did that, you know, it was a safe move because they knew that they would, Republicans would reject it immediately. And so there's just going to be a lot of um, trying to figure out what the strategy is from here. But finger pointing in the meantime. Definitely finger pointing, always finger pointing. <laughs> Can, there's some thought that they might not even legally be able to intervene in the case. I actually posed this to, to experts on Twitter yesterday because if you go back to the cost sharing reduction lawsuit the, from last year, we spent so much of 2017 talking about. There was a big question as to whether the House actually had standing to file that lawsuit. Um, So there's, I think, a question, the same question here, whether Congress can intervene in this lawsuit. Uh, and I think there's questions. Um, there, there just seem to be a lot of legal questions around this uh, this lawsuit, as well as um, the one that was fi- uh, filed by the Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch to try and um, kind of be the backup if this really, you know, does take effect in some form much further down the road. Um, whether that could actually, you know, even be filed as well for some of the same reasons that have been brought up about this case and whether they had standing for this case. Kimberly, what are you hearing? Well, um, in interviews with Republicans on the Hill, they certainly sought to distance themselves from the ruling, but they did um, echo a lot of the president's calls for um, coming back to the table on health care and coming up with a new health care plan. Democrats are more interested in going through the courts, appealing this, potentially getting it to the Supreme Court and you know, going through it legally that way. Joanne, just you wrote a story about this, as did I. What Remind our listeners what would happen if the ACA actually was found to be unconstitutional in its entirety. Well, 
people, the, the political debate is focusing on the people who got c- coverage directly through the ACA. In other words, the uh, roughly 9 million who are in the exchange, or I guess next year it's looking like 8.2, whatever. We'll get no, to that in right? a second. Um, between 8 and 9 million who will be covered in the exchange, the uh, 12 million newly eligible for Medicaid who are in the Medicaid expansion. So we're talking about sort of a rough 20-ish million. Um, and that and pre-existing conditions. That's what's taken sort of the air up in the debate. But actually, the ACA has changed pretty much everything about our healthcare system, from obscure, wonky payment things that we will not try to, you know, inflict on our listeners. But you know, the entire healthcare system has changed, and middle-class people who are getting insured at work are getting all sorts of benefits that they don't even think about anymore. They've been getting them for a couple of years. They take them for granted, and they do not realize there is polling data to support what I'm saying. They don't even realize that it's from the ACA. So if you're getting your kids, you know, well-baby visits uh, free, that's because the ACA. If you're getting birth control free, that's because of the ACA. If you're a senior getting more help with the Medicare drug costs, the donut hole, that's from the ACA. If you no longer have uh, caps on how much your insurance will cover in a year or in your lifetime, which is, you know, luckily for those of us who are healthy, that's not a big deal. But if you have some chronic disease that's going on with expensive treatments year after year, it is a big deal. That's from the ACA. And there are, there are others, but those are the biggies. Uh, uh, covering your kids until they're 26 is from the ACA. Taking all that away, I mean, no, we don't think it's very likely at the end of the day that it's going to be taken away, but it's great political talking points in the meantime. Well, and I updated a story that I originally did in 2012, the last time this was before the Supreme Court, about how if the ACA went away, it would just completely make a mosh, not just of all the things that were in the ACA, but the ACA is now basically infiltrated into the rest of the healthcare system. So it would throw everything up in the air. Um, you know, examples of Medicare payment regulations that are premised on authority in the ACA, that that would have to be completely, Medicare would lose its ability to pay for lots of things, and they would have to go back through the the um, uh, the regulatory process, which takes months, as we've also talked about. I so, mean, this, I mean, this ruling, you know, would even take away, you know, menu, uh, calorie counts on menu labels, which has really nothing to do with the individual mandate tax. But the, 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 the this this law has really permeated. We don't even think about it anymore. I mean, we still fight about it, but when we're, we're we fight about it politically. But in terms of day to day, I think an awful lot. I mean, I mentioned this at our you know at, a, at an editorial meeting yesterday in in my office, and I looked around to non health journalists, and I said, you know, you all have this this and this, and they all sort of shook their heads and said, oh, <laughs> yeah, nobody knows where this stuff came from. All right, well, this this will certainly uh, drag on into next year. Uh, and one more bit of news: uh, we got final numbers, well, sort of. Final numbers for people who signed up for insurance at the Federal Insurance Exchange, healthcare.gov, and they were kind of surprisingly high, um, down only a couple of hundred thousand from last year, even though the mandate went away and everybody predicted that the bottom would fall out um, and the, the administration took away most of the outreach money. Anna, what happened? Well, it seems that people still want health care and they still want you know the the subsidies that they're able to get through this, and so there were about um, 8.5 million that signed up. So that's four percent or so lower than last year. But there were estimates that it could be 12 percent lower. So this, I think, is is proof that the law is still pretty strong, um, or people, the market is still pretty strong despite kind of attacks on the law. And it, and th- these numbers we should point out don't include the state exchanges, including big ones like California and so. New York. Yeah. And there's New York, the, the yeah. total enrollment will be higher. And also, there's some late dribbler ins. We don't. This this is not the final, final, final. And it, it will be higher. And it doesn't include the people who will be automatically re-enrolled because no, it, they didn't come and shop. No, it does 
I believe it covers. Oh, is that covered? Is that that's the that's the reenrollment too? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, those who aren't included are those who had called and left their information. There are about two hundred thousand of those, and then um, every year, right after the open enrollment deadline, you have a lot of people who see that they were automatically re-enrolled into a plan, and then they disenroll. So there tends to be a little bit of a drop there as well. So there's going to be some adjustment. We'll probably have new numbers in the next week if last year was a good indication of when to expect all and this. And of course, people who don't. I mean, these are the people who signed up, but the people who actually get enrolled are the people who pay their first month's premium, which is, right. there's, there's a, another drop off there. There's this mm-hmm. terrible world word called effectuated <laughs> enrollment, which I do not let my writers use in print very much. But that basically means you paid your bill. So, and there's usually, um, there's usually some drop off. People who sign up don't pay or they don't pay the whole year or there, there are things. And I think the other thing we should point out is that um, part of the drop off, I mean, I think there are two things I'd like to point out. One is that it has dropped since its peak. Which was around twelve between twelve and thirteen, twelve point seven million or something was the peak a few years ago. It has dropped since then. It did drop last year and it dropped this year. So it did not implode, which is the word that we've heard many Republicans use. It certainly did not implode. It is doing what I often call muddling through, and we're still in the muddle mode. But the other thing I think that we have to remember is, you know, the individual market is a stopgap for most people. It's temporary. I mean, if you're self-employed, it may be forever. But for a lot of people, it's between jobs or or after a divorce or Various things that happen, it's a stopgap. It's not where you are for your whole life. And the economy is really good. The job market is great. I mean, it's the best in decades. Unemployment is really low. And people are, there are more people who might have needed to be in the ACA last year who now have insurance on their job. I don't, have, I don't think we really know that data. Um, but you know, what is employment? Three point what percent? I mean, it's low. Yeah, it's like three point seven. Yeah, and and some of the peeps, some of that drop off is because the economy is good. And if we see a recession and people lose their job, their their job, or they lose benefits or whatever, we will see. Uh, you know, we could easily see enrollment increase again. Also, the the Medicaid expansion in Virginia that took uh, what one hundred and fifty thousand people, um, off, sort of off the immediately off the table as being eligible for. Um, for individual insurance, not not clear how many of those right. were. We don't know how many were right, insured. Were insured right. under the ACA last year, and there's but, probably going to be more Medicaid expansion this year. I mean, Maine will finally go through after you know a long saga, um, and the three states that voted for it, um, none of whom are huge numbers. They're all more possible. Utah's not tiny, but um, Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska that'll also move people into Medicaid. Some of whom were probably on the exchange. So, it, it but I mean, the bottom line is it did not implode, and it's still muddling. <laughs> and we will still talk about it. All right. Well, that is the news. Let us get to our year-end awards, where we're going to talk about the year in health policy. We're going to divide this into categories, and at the end, we will each have our extra credit stories for the year. So the first category is biggest, most important story of the year. Let's go around the table. Anna, what's your biggest story of the year? Uh, my biggest story of the year is on um, vaping and the um, regulations that FDA has been looking into to try and oversee this. Um, what happened was there has been this epidemic, as the FDA commissioner called it, of um, kids using e-cigarettes. And uh, there's a company called Juul that's very much to, you know, the one that is selling many of these to kids and that the kids really like. Um, And I think what we're seeing this story turn into a little bit, and this is just very recently, um, is an even different arm of the story that's also very big is that the tobacco industry wants to um, sort of have a smoke-free future. Um, And so we saw Altria, which is the maker of Marlboro cigarettes in the U.S., invest 
um, a, a large amount, um, more than $12 billion in Juul. Um, and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see um, how that this goes forward and how the regulation works out. But it was the regulation was surprising because the um, the administration essentially admitted it kind of made a mistake because it had originally tried not to regulate e-cigarettes as much. Um, and now it's kind of going back and, and looking at some of the things that it could do to stop kids from using this device, these devices. Kimberly, what's your biggest story of the year? I had the Medicaid work requirement. Um, it's only gone into effect in one state, which is Arkansas, but so many other states are looking at it. And um, essentially what the work requirements do is they say that for certain people on Medicaid um, who are non-disabled and who are adults without kids, um, you have to be required to work. Usually it's around 80 hours a month. A month. And um, if you don't record that you're working, then you can be um, booted off of Medicaid. And so um, the program went into effect in Arkansas about six months ago. And so far, they've had about 17,000 people who've been disenrolled from the program. Um, other states have been approved, but they haven't started yet. So there are Wisconsin, Kentucky, Indiana, um, New Hampshire, and then several other states are still in line to get there. The Trump administration has been encouraging these. Um, I think it's the story of the year because it um, marks a big change to the Medicaid expansion that was put forth under the Affordable Care Act. And um, it remains to be seen whether the courts are going to allow it to stand. There are two lawsuits pending right now, um, but it seems to have uh, really made a difference in you know the way that the program is probably going to be you know set up in the future under the Trump administration. I'm going to jump in here because I'm going to build on that because my biggest story of the year was Medicaid, both the work requirements and the expansion that that uh, Joanne talked about. That we had these really conservative states, you know, Utah and Idaho and Nebraska. Um, voting to expand Medicaid. And, you know, in addition to Virginia, which had, had sort of split government, a, a very conservative Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, so they hadn't been able to do it until they finally basically changed the legislature. Um, but to, I think, you know, the, these last holdout states that hadn't expanded Medicaid, where they get 90 percent of it paid by the federal government, I think we, we might be reaching a tipping point on Medicaid in general. And Joanne, I believe that we now have more people on Medicaid than Medicare, right? Oh, they have yeah. for years, actually. Yeah. There have been more people right. on Medicaid and Medicare. What's your I, yeah. biggest story? I, you know, for, for someone who spends all of my time dealing with the issues that we talk about on this podcast, which is, you know, a lot about um, financing and coverage and the politics and the fighting, I actually think the st story we have to step back and really think about is the declining life expectancy in the United States of America in the 21st century. It's now three years, it's two years of decline and one year of flat. So we've had three years without anything getting better. In fact, it's gotten worse. And um, for complicated reasons, it's not just opioids and suicide. It's more than that. There, There's really things wrong with the quality of our care, who's getting our care, how we think about care. Um, and I guess I still find that shocking after three years. And I think maybe that should be the biggest story. I think you're right. Um, all right. Next category. What was the most overcovered story of the year? The one that too many people wrote about to the detriment of other things that they could have been writing about, like the lowering life expectancy. Let's go the other way. Joanne, you start. Oh, I, I emailed you this last night and I forgot what I said. <laughs> what was my overcovered story? I'll think about it and come back okay. to me. <laughs> Kimberly. Look for the email. <laughs> Um, well, this kind of goes off of our earlier conversation about the enrollment numbers, but um, the one the web that I picked was um, the way that 
um, every action on the ACA is cast as a sabotage against the health care law. Um, I think that there are probably more judicious ways to evaluate some of the changes that have been made, whether it's um, shortening the enrollment period, whether it's looking carefully at the data around, um, you know, how, what is the most effective way to get people enrolled? Is it directly emailing them? Is it looking at advertising? Is it um, navigators, things like that? Um, and so, you know, certainly a lot of the comments that have been made um, by the president or by members of, members of Congress have, you know, fed into that narrative. Um, but um, I think that there is a way to better evaluate the actions and um, what sabotage actually means. Because when I think about sabotage, I think that I interpret that as a, an increase in the um, number of uninsured and um, lack of access to health care. I'm sort of I've, I'm intrigued by this because a lot of the things that we assumed were going to be sabotage didn't turn out to be. I mean, starting last year with the cost sharing reductions when the when Trump cut them off, you know, just weeks before the beginning of open enrollment and everybody was sort of running around screaming. Um, the states figured out within a matter of some of them within a matter of hours how to get around that. And it turned out then that they didn't want to go back because the way that the state sort of figured out how to get those discounts to the people who deserve them um, without making everybody else's premiums go up dramatically, unless you were outside of the exchange, although even some cases outside the exchange turned out to, to give these huge discounts. You know, it made the discounts bigger for a lot of other people. It artificially lowered some premiums. So that turned out really not to be sabotage at all. Um, and then, you know, this, this year we all thought that getting rid of the mandate would be, you know, sort of the end of the exchanges. And that didn't turn out to be the case either. So um, I think it, it's what Anna said. People want coverage. Yeah. And the, and the, the exchange population there. is heavily subsidized. And there is the problem of the people who, you know, we've talked about this before. There, there are many people, millions, who don't get subsidized and who have a really hard time affording this. So maybe, you know, maybe the undercovered story is costs. Well, what's the most overcovered story, Anna? Uh, I'm going to take a piece of the drug pricing debate, but a small piece where um, over the summer, the um, president tweeted essentially at Pfizer and then Pfizer came back eventually and said they weren't going to um, raise drug prices um, until, you know, they were going to put a halt on it until January, essentially. And then all these other companies jumped in and followed or lowered prices on some drugs, but they were mostly drugs that didn't matter to their bottom line. Um, and so there was this big, you know, reporting uh, push on, you know, look, uh, Trump's tweet was effective and these companies are doing all this stuff. And um, there was obviously there was there was some some you know cynicism about it as well. But I think there was a, there were a lot of stories about this. And now we've seen, um, you know, just today, Reuters is reporting that about 28 pharma companies are going to raise prices come January. And those price increases are going to be larger than um, usually they are. And so I think um, it was a little bit premature to kind of give Trump a win on that one. And there was just a lot of reporting without um, some enough skepticism maybe to go with it. Well, and, and I know I'm going to get lots of mail about this, but I think that Medicare for All was maybe a little bit overhyped this year. Um, not that this is, this is an incredibly important debate. It's a debate that we as a society need to have about what we're going to do about this dysfunctional healthcare system where people aren't even living as long. Um, but I think some of the some of the breathless stuff about, um, you know, Medicare for All this year as if, you know, all you would have to do is elect a Democratic president and Democratic Congress and they could do it the next day. Um, I think we need a whole lot. Lot more, but well, looking a whole lot more deeply. Yeah, it's true. Too, like, I know we do. Right? <laughs>
I'm just saying for this year, I think it was the most overcovered story. Did you remember yours or was that yours no, also? I, I think I agreed with one of yours in the email last night and said, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what about the most undercovered story, the story that we should have spent more time on? Anna? I, my most undercovered story is drug shortages. Um, this has been a problem for several years now, um, and you know, administrations have been trying to get at it. What happened this year is that shortages have gone up. Um, they've they almost doubled um, in just a short amount of time, um, and the FDA pointed this out. One of their economists did just the other day, and I don't think it got a lot of traction. I don't think shortages this year has, there's been much reporting on it because it has kind of been an ongoing issue, but it's an even bigger problem. A lot of it um, due to the quality of manufacturing and a lot of it due to consolidation in the industry. And it's really squeezing hospitals because particularly these are injected drugs that are sterile and companies are having trouble making them. I mean, even saline is in shortage. um, And that's, you know, they can't get them, and they're paying more for them often because the prices then go up. Really important story. Kimberly? Yeah, I picked kind of a weird one. Um, so the Trump administration's FDA has been receiving kind of a lot of flack over what you were talking about earlier, Anna, with the vaping, saying that, um, you know, this is one area where they appear to be overstepping, what happened to the deregulatory agenda, et cetera. But one area that's pretty similar to that is how the FDA has been dealing with Kratom. Um, Kratom is a drug that is currently not illegal. It's not um, a drug, right? It's a supplement. Well, it's it? a it's a, I mean, a drug in the sense of like yeah. the, it alters your brain, but um, it's actually an Asian tea leaf and um, people do use it in tea. They sometimes smoke it. They sometimes take it in pills. Um, the FDA is calling for the DEA to schedule it as a Schedule One drug. So, um, you know, things like LSD and marijuana, it would end up falling into that category. Um, and defenders of the drug say, wait a minute, a lot of people are taking it because it helps alleviate opioid addiction or it helps with depression or chronic pain. Shouldn't we have another outlet to do something about this? But the FDA has been putting out a lot of different reports on the drug, um, including Um, One about um, how it has been associated with 44 deaths over the past uh, nine years almost. Um, They have another report they put out um, talking about how it um, had metal in it or how it was like salmonella or how it was really similar to opioids. Um, And, you know, people who defend the drug say, well, wait a minute, you have a lot of other legal drugs that have caused significantly more deaths over this time period. So they want the opportunity to be able to do studies and find out whether it could be something that is medical and not have it face the same um, kind of fate that medical marijuana is, has faced. So that's that's my pick for undercovered. Joanne. I think it's, um, you know, we certainly have a lot of coverage on the opioid crisis, but what's also going on in this country is we have increases of drug abuse and fatal overdoses of a whole lot of drugs. It's not just opioids. We have an addiction crisis. Um, cocaine use is up. Meth is up. Um, benzos, benzodiazepines <laughs> is up. Um, and people mix them. And then now there's fentanyl and the drug supply of some of these other drugs. And people are, um, be- I'm not saying that focus on opioids is wrong. We obviously have to focus on opioids. But it's a bigger problem. And we're not paying attention. Well, mine's going to sound weird, but it's Medicare. Um, I think we were, you know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) When when Joanne and I were, you know, young health reporters, however many years ago, four hundred, yeah, Medicare (laughs) was basically all we covered because that's kind of all there was in the in the federal sort of realm. If you were covering healthcare in Washington, you were covering Medicare and to a much lesser extent Medicaid. Um, But Medicare drives most of the healthcare system still. You've got ten thousand baby boomers a day joining Medicare, and for right now, it's 
states not running up Medicare costs because they're all in their you know 60s and early 70s, so they're still pretty healthy. But boy, in about 10 years, um, it's going to be a very serious issue. And I think Medicare has just been kind of backburnered, um, as we've talked about. You know, Medicare with its 60 million people doesn't get talked about nearly as much as the the nine or 10 million people in the in the individual market. So um, that that each is, of whom has the equivalent of a book written about them, right? Yeah, <laughs> at this point. So that that is my candidate. All right. Even though Margot isn't here this week, I thought we should have a category for the nerdiest health policy story of the year. There were a lot of nominations for this category. Um, Kimberly, why don't you start? Sure. Um, well, I picked 1332 waivers mainly because, um, you know, for so long, I think Republicans and Republican states kind of had their eye on this provision as kind of an off ramp to the Affordable Care Act. You should and, say what they are. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm sorry. 1332 waivers are a part of the Affordable Care Act that allow states to um, make certain changes to the health care law in ways that will help to increase coverage and lower the cost of health insurance. So they have very specific rules um, that they must follow, not just in the goals that they must meet, but in the ways that they have to be passed. So um, the Trump administration has loosened some of the rules around uh, these provisions, and um, we'll see whether they stand. But um, the reason that I picked it is because um, it really has, for, for a lot of states, it did help them this year to lower premiums because they used the 1332 waiver to put in reinsurance programs, which really brought down premiums. Which, which paid for the highest cost patients so they could lower premiums for everybody else. Yes, yes, exactly. Thank you. And um, on top of that, um, I think it's really interesting that it's been something that more left-leaning states have looked at where they try to implement single-payer programs. And um, they're also running into barriers with these waivers. So um, it remains to see what will happen. But I picked it just because it's, it's been something that the Trump administration has really brought back to the forefront um, late this year. Joanne. Oh, she had 1332, so I'm going to go to 340B. This, I think, is the wonky. This took me 20 years to understand. 340B is a program that helps subsidize drugs for hospitals that treat a lot of low-income and uninsured people. And, and it community is, health And center. community health centers. The, the political fight has been more about the hospital piece of it, but it's basically subsidies. It's become a war between pharma and the hospitals about why the program has grown and whether the money is being used appropriately and everybody. It's a huge food fight and it's a very complicated program. So um, trying to explain it simply is, I just tried. Um, so I, I vote for 340B as the uh, as the wonk out of the year. Yeah, that's mine too. And I should point out, I think Margot was the one that noticed this first, is that this, this fight has gotten so intense that there are um, posters on buses and bus shelters. Only in Washington. Only in, I don't right, think you'd find them like in Kalamazoo. Even so, the idea of, of, of a bus shelter, and there was one with a unicorn, and I can't remember which side of the fight it was on, but I thought, this is the ultimate Washington fight. Uh, Anna? Well, I don't have any numbers. I just have a letter. It's the um, the Part B demos that have been... Um, been for Medicare. For Medicare, yes, yes. So I, I'm trying to work on your undercover story. Um, but the uh, administration has been trying to get at drug pricing, and so they've been um, implementing some changes in the Part B program um, that, you know... These are the, the drugs that they're provided directly by the doctor. Right, yes. Yeah. So the, these aren't the ones you go pick up in the pharmacy. Those are Part D. Um, Part B is, is 
administered by a doctor. And so the administration is trying these different things. Um, one of them is an international pricing index, um, which may be kind of the nerdiest one and has caused a, a big fight, um, particularly among economists and different people. Talk, you know, what it does is um, would sort of benchmark what the U.S. pays against what a lot of other countries pay, I think. Which about, is a lot of less. Which is which a lot is less. Which is a lot less um, because, because many of them uh, set their prices or negotiate them directly. Um, and so this um, set off a, a debate over whether we should be piggybacking essentially on countries like that or whether we should really be trying to solve our own problem. We could nominate one for next year. Yeah. It's a Medicare one. <laughs> we might have a fight next year about whether hospice should be carved back into Medicare Advantage. And Julie, it'll be make you so happy. It's like the wonkiest Medicare thing in the world. But I'm, uh, we're not what really about on the, 2019. The, the donut hole cliff, then the yeah. cliff, the Medicare cliff. We'll yeah, we'll, I think we'll have, we'll have more have, Medicaid yeah, we'll have next, plen- Medicare we'll, next year. We will have plenty to talk about. Um, all right. Well, now let's play my interview with Frank Lunt. Then we will come back and we will do our year-end extra credits. <laughs> We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Frank Luntz, Republican political consultant, pollster, and political branding expert. If you haven't seen him on TV, I would say you probably never watch the news. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, I have to say uh, the news is pretty hard to watch right now, and the focus groups that I'm doing are pretty hard to listen to. So I don't mind it if people tell me that when they see me on TV talking to voters— they tune it out or turn it off. Well, I don't. Um, but obviously, you did a lot of polling around this year's midterm elections. Um, we know healthcare was a big issue, but how big an issue and how does it break by party? It was the number one issue in the country. Forty Over 40 percent of Americans determined who they were going to vote for for Congress based on health care. And those who did, the Democrats won overwhelmingly, almost a 40 percent difference if health care was your number one issue. Second is that the public... Coming into 2018, had a very negative opinion of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and frankly, the Republican um, inability to communicate its alternatives and, in some cases, the policies itself. The public said, "I may not like the Affordable Care Act, but I don't like the Republican position even more." And as I said to a senator today, I've never seen a piece of legislation introduced by the majority party that was so overwhelmingly rejected by their own followers as the Republican alternative to the Affordable Care Act. I think that in the very first polls that were done, it was 27 percent who supported it and over 40 percent who opposed it. So let me be clear. The Republicans did not do well in health care over the last couple of years. And unless they get a different approach going forward, they're not going to do well in 2020 either. The Democrats, well, I started covering this in the 1980s, and the Democrats always were the, the preferred party on health care. Sometime when the Republicans did the Medicare drug bill, they got a little bit of a bump. But really, since the Affordable Care Act passed, health care has been a, an issue that broke for the Republicans, capitalizing, as you say, on the, in, on the unpopularity of the Affordable Care Act. Um, do you think this is a blip? Do you think Republicans can get this back? Or are Democrats sort of reclaiming their historic popularity on this issue? If you touch it, you own it, which is what I tried to explain to them. And it was so easy for the GOP. There were three simple questions, and nobody communicates this way. You communicate politics not in statements but in questions. Now, I know that the people who listen to this, I'm sure a bunch of them, will hear my voice and and not particularly like it, and they'll yell at me. Well, okay. 
but you're much more effective if you ask a question than you are if you make a statement. And three questions for the Affordable Care Act. You were promised that your, the cost of your health care would drop. Did it? Over 80% of Americans said no. You were promised that you could keep your doctor in your hospital. Do you know of someone who lost their doctor, their, their hospital, their health care plan? Over 40% knew someone or had lost it themselves. And the third one, they promised to make health care easier, simpler, more accessible. Is it easier and simpler? Once again, over 80% said no. Simple questions, but I guess that's too complicated for the average Republican politician. So we talk on the podcast a lot about how Democrats and Republicans are both internally divided amongst themselves about health care. Republicans obviously seem to have trouble coming to some consensus about what they wanted. Democrats are about to embark on a fight about should they fix the Affordable Care Act or push for Medicare for all. Which party is more divided? Well, they're both divided. They both have no real... I think the Democrats are more united on a strategy, and it is... It starts off with a plurality of support. Americans hear the phrase Medicare for all and they think, wow, that means we're just going to take a program and expand it and it's it's worked before. This will work. $32 trillion. Where the hell does that money come from? And I use that language explicitly. Where the hell are you going to get the money? You can raise taxes on the wealthy. You can raise taxes on the middle class. You'd have to raise taxes on everyone. It would be almost a 10% increase Because we are all getting older, the percent of the population that's over 65 is growing, the percentage of the population that needs these kinds of services is growing, and the services are becoming more and more expensive. So someone's got to pay for it. But that is not the strongest argument if you don't like Medicare for all. So everyone stay tuned because I'm about to, to unveil the phrase. Oh, please. But it really is. It is yet again another government takeover, another Washington takeover of healthcare. But what the Republicans need to acknowledge is that Americans are not going to go back to a time when pre-existing condition was a reason you could be denied health care. They are not going to go back to a time when you have 45 million uninsured Americans, that that is not acceptable anymore. And you're not going to go back to a time when the only place that you could get coverage, you could get care, was in the emergency room of a hospital. We have decided as a society that that needs to change. But where the Democrats have it wrong is that the public is not willing to pay any amount of money in higher taxes, higher copays, or the costs. And Americans absolutely demand the right to choose the doctor, the hospital, and the insurance plan that's best for them. And that is not compromisable. So if you're going to take away choice and control, the American people will say no. If you're going to keep it unaffordable for so many Americans, the public will say no. So both political parties have an opportunity here, and both political parties have a very, the, the sign is flashing, danger, danger, they ought to pay attention. Do you do you get a feel from your focus groups about what it is that voters want? I mean, Uwe Reinhardt, the, the, the late Princeton health economists used to say that Americans were very adolescent when it comes to health care. They want all the health care they can consume and they want somebody else to pay for it. Um, is that basically what you're seeing? Is there a solution here that the public would, would accept? Is that what they are saying? Yes. Is there a solution the public would accept? No. <laughs> so basically, in some ways, this is kind of a losing issue for either party. It's a great political issue, but it's a horrible issue if you want to build trust and confidence in the government for what it can do for people who are genuinely in need. I mean, the, the, the challenge for healthcare is there is no traditional supply and demand. 
Just because you have no money doesn't mean you're not going to get sick and need health care. Just because you're wealthy and can afford it does not mean that you still don't get agitated and, and, and in desperate need if something goes wrong. It's not a traditional market, and it has never been. And I don't believe that you can entirely turn it into a market because people need help. I remember when I, I'll be blunt, I remember when I had a kidney stone. You could not make me go to the doctor until I was so double over in pain that they had to actually pick me up, walk me down, carry me down the stairs into the cab because I would not go in via an ambulance. And in that case, it did not matter how much it cost. I was going to pay for the morphine. And by the way, for those of you who are unhappy in life, I will tell you, as bad as a kidney stone is, morphine is awesome. <laughs> That's a whole nother issue. Um, but do you do you see this? I mean, obviously, as you said, this was the biggest issue in 2018. Is it going to be the biggest issue again in 2020, or do we just not know yet? We don't. We know it's going to be an issue. We know it's going to be one of the top three because they're not going to fix it. The Democrats in the House are not going to cooperate with the Republicans in the Senate, so likely we're going to have stalemate. The president has been successful in dismantling some aspects of it, but there's still a tax for it. There's still there's enough of it still there that those who don't like it hate it. And there's enough that's been repealed from it that those who loved it are mad that some of those components are gone. And then you've got a divided government. I, I, I don't know what happens other than we're all going to be arguing about this two years from today. So good luck. Well, well, we'll have things to talk about on the podcast. It gives me a reason to get up in the morning. <laughs> me too. Frank Lund, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thanks. We are back, and it's time for our extra credits. That's usually where we talk about our favorite stories we read this week. But in the spirit of the end of the year, we're going to have each panelist tell us what their favorite article or book of the year was. Some, but not necessarily all of these, are ones we've recommended before. But we think they're worth another plug, and we thought these might be helpful over the holidays if your flight is delayed or if you just need to escape your relatives for a while. Um, Joanne, why don't you go first? Bad Blood. We have talked about it before. I the love book. that book. We love the book. I think all of us have read it. We all loved it. It's, it's how do I pronounce his name? John? Carrie Rue. Carrie Rue's um, book about Theranos. And even if you think you know this story of the uh, blood testing lab that spectacularly and fraudulently collapsed, it's a great yarn. It reads like this fast-paced action novel, only it's about blood testing. It's great. It's just wonderful. And it's short. You can, I mean, I read it with you guys on a plane. It's it's yeah, a few hours. <laughs> and when our plane got delayed going to Austin, and um, it, it's, it's just a really good book and you don't have to have technical expertise about genetics or blood. Kimberly. Um, so I picked the article, um, Here's How Cornell Scientist Brian Wensick Turned Shoddy Data into Viral Studies About How We Eat. And it's by Stephanie Lee. And I picked it because... At BuzzFeed, exactly. I've, I picked it because um, I've been, you know, reflecting a lot on, and, and I often kind of <laughs> talk to scientists who say, you know, why don't people trust scientists? And I'm kind of like, why don't people trust journalists? And we kind of like have a back and forth about that. And it's because of instances, you know, like this. Um, trust is something that is extremely hard to gain, extremely difficult to, or ex excuse me, excuse, trust is something that is very hard 
to gain and it's extremely easy to lose. And so um, I've just been reflecting a lot on that. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of parallels with the media and, um, you know, science and credibility and uh, public trust. So that's why I chose it. On the other hand, this was journalism that actually there were a lot of stories this year that that, you know, created results. A number. I mean, most of his papers, I think, at this point have been retracted. Um, He's been he's losing his job as of next June. Um, So this was something that that and this was uncovered by this journalist at BuzzFeed. Absolutely. Anna. Um, mine is Atul Gawande's um, piece in The New Yorker, his article, Why Doctors Hate Their Computers. And I thought um, it was such an interesting look. You know, we very easily kind of make fun of doctors for using the fax machine and kind of for not wanting to get behind technology. Um, and, you know, what what this really looks at is... Um, you know the use of the use of technology, and sort of you'll you'll see a lot of the um, you know doctors now switching over to electronic records. And um, what what he talked to was someone who has done you know a doctor who uses these, but has to like has to work after work just to like keep up with it. And I think for me it was just such an interesting look at. Um, a problem that has kind of been easy to make fun of and doctors not really wanting to switch over to electronic health records and things like that. Um, but really, does it actually make a difference for the patients? What are doctors saying about it? And really good doctors who, you know, are are willing to get up to speed on these kinds of things. It's really making their lives harder. And so it was a surprise to me to read it. And I think that that would, you know, be something people might want to take a look at. Yeah, I think the idea was that, you know, we, we would be able to have all of this medical information not no longer locked away in individual file cabinets, but it could be aggregated and used for research, and it could follow the patient around to different doctors. And I think what we've ended up with is doctors and patients who are unhappy because there's a screen in between them and the doctor. But we have a pediatrician who's really good at his typing on his tablet while still looking at a kid about why he should eat more vegetables. But so they, it can be done. I, it, but they can't. But we're, they're having trouble making the transition. Yes, I've also seen, uh, I've seen, I have had family members in situations where there's, where it's a screen and no patient, but I've also seen that it can work. Yeah. All right. Mine is a story about something we talked about many times, including earlier today, uh, work requirements for Medicaid. It's a deeply reported piece in the Arkansas Times by Benjamin Hardy called Locked Out of Medicaid. Um, Arkansas's work requirement strips insurance from thousands of working people. And it's a look at some of the actual people who make up the now 17,000 individuals who've been stripped of their Medicaid coverage for failing to report their work hours online. As we've discussed, many were working but unaware of the requirement or aware of the requirement but unable to navigate the very complicated website. I would point out that since the story ran in November, the state has agreed to allow people to report their work hours by telephone, uh, but apparently that has proved difficult as well. So this story, too, will continue into 2019. So that is our show for 2018. Thank you for listening. We'll be back Thursday, January 3rd with our Ask Us Anything episode and back to regular news January 10th. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. And before we go, a shout out to the people you don't hear but who make us sound good every week, particularly our production staff, Francis Ying and Caitlin Hilliard, and editors Lexi Verdon and Stephanie Stapleton. Happy holidays, you guys. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Leonard K.L. At Joanne Cannon. We will talk to you soon. In the meantime, be healthy.